What can I do to help? There's something in many of us, God put it there, that wants us to help other people in distress. To do something to lessen another's suffering, perhaps to aid them in their crisis moment. The Good Samaritan is noted for this aid and the help of a beaten and robbed man. Jesus tells the story, really underlining the act of love that we have for other people, especially in their distress. Ontario has what's called a Good Samaritan law. And what that means is that you can help somebody and never have to fear that you're going to be sued as a result of it. Some remain bystanders or leave the scene, not wanting to get involved, but others, we want to help when help is needed. The awful murders that took place last Sunday night in London, this family that was hit with a vehicle, many nearby rushed to help those in need, to do what they could. You can actually see pictures of people trying to help even before the paramedics arrived. And their selflessness was noted by community leaders. What an evil that was done. And we with everyone else condemn this evil and we expect justice. That poor little boy in the hospital, his family gone, we should pray for him, pray for their loved ones and for the London community, a family crisis. Lord have mercy. Of course, Nathaniel Veltman is known to us. He attended here with his family in junior high and his early teen years up until about five years ago. He became a very troubled teenager and I understand he was estranged from his parents. And as you know, his mother Alicia was always quick to ask for prayer for him. Uh, Alicia has since moved on from us. She has remarried, is living outside the area. And of course, we pray for her and for her, her children too. Uh, Lord, have mercy. So how can we understand this evil? It's going to take some time, some reflection, more information, and the course of justice to really come to grips with it. I mean, it's a family crisis for all. Lord, have mercy. In Romans chapter 7, we have a cry for help. As we work through this text, listen for it. Because it's a very deep and primal cry for help. And prepare yourself. What can you do? What can you do to help? Paul has already shown us 
in chapter 6, the skeleton in our closet, Adam, who sinned and death through sin came into the world so that all die because all have sinned, he says. And now Paul is going to, in chapter 7, use a well-known rhetorical figure of speech that if we don't understand this, we really can't understand this chapter. The figure of speech that he's going to use is called impersonation. That is, he's going to retell the history of the fall into sea. And Paul is going to take on the persona of Adam. He's going to impersonate Adam. The I, for example, in verse 7, he says, I would not have known sin. I, this I is not autobiographical. It is Paul, in fact, speaking for Adam. The use of impersonation was considered by the Romans to be the very highest skill set possible in the use of rhetoric, in the use of debate and speech. It was the finest, most difficult skill. And this is what Paul uses in chapter 7. This was the view of the early church fathers and is now the view of many commentators as well, that Paul is using impersonation. He's really going to answer the question by taking on Adam's character. He's going to answer the question, is the law good or bad? Because he's told us we're under grace, not under law. Is the law good or bad? Verse 5, he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members. So is the law good or is it bad? The law stimulated to sin, leading to death. Is the law a good thing or a bad thing then? Uh, short answer he gives us in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. That is no and then he says this, yet if it had not been for the law, I, that's Adam speaking, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. It's only Adam who could make this statement, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. There's only one person in all of history could have said that, and that's Adam. You wouldn't even know such a thing existed as sin. Uh, God's command to him not to eat of the tree, well, through that command, the very possibility of sin dawned on Adam. And then he says, that law, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If God hadn't told him not to desire that tree, not to covet that tree. Now, we tend to go right away to the Tenth Commandment in our mind. Oh, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Well, that's true. But early, early Jewish thought was that the commandment that Adam broke in the Garden of Eden was the Tenth Commandment. He coveted, he desired the tree. And this would have been on Paul's mind because it was the view of Jewish scholars. And then in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, that's singular, by the way, that commandment, God gave him one command, produced in me all 
kinds of covetousness. Covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. He alone in all human history could have said these words. The commandment is singular. And then verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Again, only Adam could say this. He alone was the only human being who was alive apart or without the law. God then, after creating him, gave him the command. Verse 10 and 11, commentators agree here with the early church fathers that sin is being personified as the snake in the garden. Some of the words that are being used come from Genesis. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law, he says, is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And so he's saying sin deceived and spiritually killed me. It killed the first of our race. It led to physical death. And so Adam concludes in this. It it, it killed me. Sin beyond measure. It's a very sad end for Adam. Lord have mercy. And so where Paul is going with this is he's saying that good things from God can be used for evil. And the law, he says in verse 12, is holy. It's righteous. It's good. The commandment given to Adam is good. It's not an evil thing. It's a wonderful thing. But it can be used for evil. Just as food can be used for gluttony, or wine for drunkenness, or sex for sexual immorality, what is good can be used for evil. Israel as a nation experienced this. God warned them, when you come into the land flowing with milk and honey, all those good things from God, he says, be careful unless they forget him, which they did. They forgot him. And they turned to other gods to serve them. All those good things can be used for evil. A good mind can be turned to planning robberies or even murders. A good material blessing can become an, can become an idol. And here, the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous, the law is not sinful. I mean, the law is summed up by Christ, isn't it? Love. The law is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. The law is good. And the command given to Adam was good. It didn't produce evil. Rather, sin, death, Satan used the law for evil purposes. And so in verse 13, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. What is good can be turned for evil purposes. It's not the law that killed Adam. It, death and the law revealed the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And so Adam really shows then what giving into temptation looks like and the awful consequences and the effects of it. 
Christ have mercy. If you talk about bugs, it's not very long before you see people scratching their skin and swatting themselves. Even though there's no bugs there, you start feeling like they are. If someone says, don't scratch, don't swat yourself, you're desperate to do it all of a sudden. The command focuses our attention. Don't do this. Now suddenly we want to do it. Imagine having a bad case of poison ivy. And you want to scratch it. And the doctor says, don't scratch it. I mean, being told not to scratch it just makes it all that much worse. Now you can't think of anything else, but you want to scratch it. But he said, don't scratch it, but I must scratch it. And you know, eventually you scratch it. This is like the commandment of God to Adam. Don't eat, but I must eat now. And eventually he eats. And Adam having the command, he can't think of anything else. And so the good, holy, righteous law of God can be used for evil. Now listen, the cry for help is getting closer. It's getting louder. If you hear a cry for help, your blood begins to get up, come up, your, your adrenaline starts to flow, and you want to help. Who is crying out? Who needs help? In just a moment, you're going to see who needs help. You're going to hear clearly. And so Paul has impersonated Adam in chapter 7, and we leave Adam in sin and death. And now Paul will move on, and he will impersonate those who are in Adam. We, he starts off with a tense change in verse 14. We now, he leaves the past tense, and he enters into the present tense. The we and I now, he takes on the persona of a person who is outside of Christ, who is going to come to Christ. He takes on the character of someone who's going to go through a process of discovering they have a guilty conscience and that they can do nothing in themselves to save themselves. Someone who is a pre-Christian, as it were. And so he says in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Saying the law is good. This this person even wants to keep the law. This is not an indifferent person. He wants to keep the law. He wants to be obedient to God. He can't help but scratch and swat away. He can't not sin. And he does what he knows, and he knows he shouldn't. He has a guilty conscience. Look what he says in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. (laughs) Nothing good there. He's, He's not able to not sin. He feels it. He knows it. He hates this about himself. 
He anguishes about it. He's not indifferent as some are. He's not dismissive as many are. He's not defiant as others are. He has a guilty conscience before God, and he feels it oh so deeply. After a storm, we may find that the power has gone out. We go into the kitchen, we turn on the light, and no light shines. No power is flowing. We try another switch just in case it's just that fuse or that bulb, but we find though we try every switch, there's no power, there's no light. We want the light, but we must sit in the dark. And this person in Adam's legacy, Adam's legacy, says, we, we, we want to obey God. We even want to try and obey God. We even will to obey God. But in the end, there's no power. There's no light. There's this darkness. It's so frustrating. And you can hear the frustration. Look what he says in the last half of verse 18 and following. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Lord, have mercy. Like a slave whose mind might think one thing, but whose body obeys his master, it must obey his master. He is a slave to sin. Verse 21 or 20, now I do what I do not want. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I'm I'm this awful, conflicted person. I want to obey God, but I can't. And he describes, uses the the language of war. He's saying, there's a war going on in me. I have a guilty conscience. I want to obey God. I want to submit to his law and to his will. But I am completely unable to do it. And I'm losing the battle here, is what he's saying. And so the cry for help is upon us. Is there anyone to help? Can you come to his aid? In verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who can help me? Who can deliver me from this? 
He's at a crossroads. He's at a moment of crisis. It's a point of despair. It's, he's unable to please God and do God's will. He wants to, but he's hopeless in it. Lord, I'm desperate here. Lord, I'm wretched here. Who can help me, Lord? Help me. Who will deliver me from this guilty conscience I have? From this powerlessness to, to fight sin, from this internal war in my very heart that I'm losing, from this body of death? Who can help me? Christian, as many of you are Christians, you have been there. You must have been there or you cannot be a Christian. You faced this crisis moment in your past. This was you if you are in Christ now, as you came under conviction for your sins, as you came to understand that there was no work that you could possibly do, no effort that you could make that would win God's favor because you were sinful. This was your cry, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is, was your cry, the cry of a guilty conscience before God. The, the crisis that that brings, the crisis of wanting to please God. But real, realizing that no matter what you do, you do the opposite of what you want to do. The crisis of knowing that some strange influence was upon you. Some strange influence was in you that defeated your best intentions. Time and time again, this was your spiritual crisis. The crisis moment of your life. The moment when you cried out for mercy that moment you understood your own wretchedness, that it became so clear to you. The moment when all was lost, but all was gained. Look at what he says in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying, and as he'll develop in chapter 8, Christ Jesus is the only one who can help. Only he can transform a person. Only he can unite our will to obey with our actions to obey him. Only he can save us and wash us clean from our sins. Only he can buy us back from sin and death. And only Jesus Christ, the Savior, 
who died on the cross for us, who rose again, and in him we find forgiveness for our sins, and we find life in him, not death. We find grace and mercy from God. Only he can win the battle that rages within a convicted person's heart and mind. Only Jesus. Out of the depths I cry to you, in darkest places I will call. Incline your ear to me anew, and hear my cry for mercy, Lord. Is this crisis moment in your past? If it's not, you cannot yet be a Christian. For every Christian must, will come to this moment of crisis. What about you? Lord, have mercy on me. Admit your weakness. and Feel your guilty conscience, your desire to obey God, but your inability to do so. And pour out your heart like water before the Lord. Remember the blind man who cried out to Jesus time and time again. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tried to hush him up. They told him to be quiet. Oh, he just got all the louder still. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I cry to you day and night. Listen to my cry. He is the God who saves day and night. We cry to him. And so let us pray together now. Would you bow with me? Oh Lord, heal us and we will be healed. Save us and we will be saved. You are our praise. In you we hope. In you alone. We pray that all in the building this morning will have come to that crisis moment and put their faith and trust in Jesus. To trust in your unfailing love and to be able to rejoice in their salvation, to say there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. You incline your ear and hear our cries. You draw us out from the pit of destruction, from the miry bog. You set our feet high upon a rock. You make our steps secure. And you put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to you, O God. The strife is o'er. The battle is done. Now is the victor's triumph won. Oh, let the song of praise be sung. Hallelujah. Amen.